following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you'd open your Bible to the book of Acts this morning in chapter 1, we'll be in Acts chapter 1 and 2, and I'd like to, um, well, we'll be in Acts uh, later this morning as well as it turns out, um, because we're going to be introducing a new series new uh, expositional preaching series, and uh, we'll do that using the book of Acts. But uh, for now, Acts chapter 1. And my question to the men yesterday at the men's prayer meeting was the same question I'm going to pose to you this morning. What are the priorities of the church? What are the priorities of the church? Today, the situation is such that it's uh, easy for us to get distracted from what the real priorities of the church are. Uh, the, and that's always been the case, actually. Um, I'm thinking of especially political realities, uh, political slash medical today, of course, um, that have you know really been at the front and center of things in our minds. Church is not focused on those matters. And I'm going to demonstrate that from the book of Acts here. I'm going to illustrate it from earlier on in the history of the gospel in which uh, you remember that there were people um, in Jesus' time who were agitating for political change. They did not like too much to have the Romans ruling over them, did they? Nobody likes to have people lording it over them. People want some kind of self-rule, and they were not able to have that. And they were not able to have that. Why? Because of their disobedience. Right? God sent them away off the land uh, in the northern tribes years and years before. Same with the southern kingdom. Uh, you know, the dispersion really has gone on since then throughout the world. But there have been a number of times that the nation has somewhat regathered. They were able to return um, in uh, chron- at the end of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. Those uh, books describe a return of the Jewish people to their homeland but they really haven't been in charge of their homeland in a good way. Um, even now, it's somewhat limited. Uh, there is a good bit of self-rule going on, but there are a lot of territories that they don't have control of that they should have control of. But in any case, they were thrown off the land for uh, disobedience, but they wanted to have a political, um, really political messiah, a political resurgence, you remember the disciple named Simon the Zealot? Simon the Zealot. He was a zealot because he was part of the political party that was a nationalist, um, populist kind of political party that wanted to have uh, Rome out. And, uh, of course, he left that behind when he became a follower of Christ and, and all of that. Um, in, so there's always been this kind of mix-up of political and spiritual things. The Pharisees were all about this. Um, by the end of John's Gospel, chapter 19, you have the people and the leaders calling out that they don't have any king but Caesar. They don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak, uh, in another way, different than the zealots. And so you've got this, uh, this situation. Um, the... Uh, the, the apostles themselves expected that a kingdom of God would appear. Some of the followers of Christ, Luke chapter 19, expected the kingdom of God would appear immediately. 
And what did the Lord have to do? He had to disabuse them of that notion. I want to I parse that a little bit this morning because we're going to see in Acts chapter 1, if you go there, Acts chapter 1 uh, and verse number 4, well, verse 3, let's say, it says, To whom, to his chosen apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen uh, by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then they asked him a question. Lord, in verse uh, 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now he had, remember, in verse 3, been teaching to them things concerning the kingdom of God. And so they were well instructed in what the kingdom of God would look like. But then they asked him, are you going to restore it now? And he said to them, now listen, I'm going to depart from the text here. Did he say to them, well, actually, you guys have it all wrong. The kingdom is not actually what you think it's going to be. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be invisible. It's a brand new thing. It's totally different than what you expected from the Old Testament. Is that what he said? Not at all. He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So he doesn't answer them, yes, that he's going to restore the kingdom at this time. He doesn't exactly answer no, but the implication of his answer is not at this time. There's going to be another time. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Lord Jesus does not disabuse them of some wrong idea of what the kingdom will be. He disabuses them of a wrong timing for the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom itself is unchanged from the Old Testament. It was never redefined in the New Testament, although many, 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 perhaps, perhaps the majority of Christian scholars today say that the kingdom is a new thing, totally unexpected, a new form of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It has nothing to do with political and, or, or those kind of realities that you see in the Old Testament, agricultural prosperity and things like that that the kingdom of God today is a spiritual kingdom where God rules in your heart. That is very far from biblical teaching, okay? Very, very far from biblical teaching. And although you may not have heard of that from many, I want to commend that to you so that you understand that what, the, what was promised in the Old Testament was a kingdom, a political, governmental, geographical, agricultural uh, spiritual, religious society that we call the kingdom of the God of heaven that is going to come according to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7 when the Lord returns and he's going to establish an actual kingdom. He will be the Pharaoh, Caesar, president, dictator, whatever you want to call it. That's going to be Jesus. I put it in those stark terms to help you understand it's a real government. It will have real departments. It will have real divisions. It will have real territory, land, dirt that you'll be able to dig up, that you'll be able to stand on. That's the kingdom of God on earth for a thousand years when the Lord returns after the tribulation. 
That is what they understood the kingdom to be, roughly, but they expected it to start right now. The Lord told that parable in Luke 19, they expected the kingdom of God to appear immediately, and what did he tell them? Well, not so immediate, because the kingdom of God is like a nobleman who goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. What does that imply about the timing of the kingdom? There's going to be a delay, and that is indeed really the the kind of revelatory mystery through the Gospels and up into the book of Acts that they had to deal with. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. Then he said, look at Matthew chapter, uh, I think it's 21. Let me see if I have that address right in my head here. Yeah, it's Matthew 21, 43. Matthew 21, 43, the Lord has been offering the kingdom. He's offering himself as the king. He's saying, here's what we're going to do. You have to repent in order to be rightly related to this kingdom. Of course, people didn't want to do that. They just wanted the political side of it. And in Matthew 21, 43, he says, because they've rejected him, said that he does his works by the power of the devil. Uh, they, they, they don't want him. They don't want repentance. So he says to them, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Uh, We believe that nation bearing the fruits of it is a nation that will come later in time, later on the timeline, but it will be uh, the Jewish nation because Romans chapter 11 says that the deliverer will come out of Zion and all Israel therefore will be saved. And so they will come to a point of repentance. They will... They will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. And so the kingdom will come. It's been offered. It was rejected. It's taken away from them, Matthew 21, 43. It will come back again. And this is what the disciples were confused about. So they slowly became unconfused over time. And the Lord's teaching on the kingdom here and the delay of it was part of that. Okay, so... Somebody might object to what I've said here so far and say, well, we're not in the kingdom, then what are we in? I mean, what, what did Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He didn't establish the kingdom. It's a very easy answer. He established the church. The church is not a kingdom. I'm not a political ruler. You're not political subjects. You're members of a flock. I'm an under-shepherd of a flock. And so that kingdom has been delayed, and instead he has established a church. Now, what is the relationship of the church to the future kingdom? Do you know? Do you know what the relationship of the church is to the future kingdom? Well, what's a, the, the scriptures call the church under a figure having to do with marriage and Christ. What is the church called? The bride of Christ, yes? And the scriptures promise that God's people in this age, the church, will reign with him, will be co-regents with him in the kingdom. So God has a people who will be the kind of the chief nation of that kingdom, that's called Israel. And then he's calling out for himself a people who will be co-reigners with him in that kingdom. Those people are called the church. 
And he's going to bring them all together under one grand heading, the kingdom of God in the future. There'll be the church, there'll be the nation of Israel, there'll be all the Gentile nations for a thousand years. And there will be agricultural prosperity, peace, justice, swift punishment for crimes, and so on and so forth. We don't have time to go into all the characteristics. That would be a a good Sunday school series to do. But the reason I'm saying all of this is because the disciples themselves kind of got mixed up. And they were thinking, okay, are you going to restore the kingdom? And the Lord said, no, it's not at this time. Your job right now is something else. And so I want to encourage us to not get too sidetracked by the political in our church life. One of the, one of the side effects of getting too sidetracked by the political is that it causes unnecessary divisions in the church. Unnecessary divisions in the church. So-and-so believes this, so-and-so believes this other thing, and there's a spectrum of belief and philosophy in the church family, and people get at each other about these things, and pause. I'm not saying there's no right and no wrong in politics. Don't hear me saying that at all. We need to conform our thinking to not politics, but to this book right here. So, illustrating Simon the Zealot, getting politi- you know, politics mixed up there, uh, the Pharisees, the question about is the kingdom of God going to appear immediately? Even, even the disciples or the followers, the kind of sort of followers of Jesus in John chapter 5, intended by force to come and make him what? King. Well, it wasn't time for that. So he departed from them and went off to a mountain by himself and prayed and stayed away from those situations. And so there's always a tendency for us to get our minds all mixed up in politics and medicine and everything like that, and we lose the mission of the church. And so this message really is designed to be a reminder for us of what we're supposed to be doing, what our emphasis is supposed to be. So it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Look, it's nice to know the kingdom of God is coming. It's nice to know that you know we can fear not, little flock, for your Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom, isn't it, Brother Thurman? One of your favorite verses, yes, out of probably 32,000 other favorite verses. And one, thank you, yes, actually I think there's a little bit more than that in the Bible, but in any case, um, God will give us the kingdom, but it's not our focus to know about the timing and the when and the wherefore and all of that. Rather, he said, instead of knowing the times and seasons, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And then he gives the four regions. Now, we didn't focus on this yesterday, any of you gentlemen who were here, but do you believe that you have been given power from God to be witnesses for him? Or do you feel weak? Sometimes I think we feel weak. We don't recognize the vast resources that are inside of our fingertips. God's dwelling in us by his spirit, and we do have the authority, the power, 
and the right to declare to the nations there is only one way of salvation, and that way is through Jesus Christ, of whom we also have become derivatively witnesses, because we haven't seen him directly. Blessed are those who haven't seen him and yet have believed, but for those who did see him, they've passed that down to us. Notice the areas that he says. They were in Jerusalem at the time, or right outside Jerusalem. They are to be witnesses there, close to home. That's kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? Close to home. Secondly, all Judea, the surrounding community. Samaria, you know, the next, the next community up to the north. Next major division, if you will, or province almost of the area. And then to the end of the earth. And we paused yesterday when we thought about this to ask ourselves what happened in the book of Acts that showed the fulfillment of that verse. Well, when did they go to Samaria? When did the gospel go to Samaria? In the book of Acts, in the listing of chapters. Give me a chapter number where they landed up in Samaria. It's okay to use your Bible, okay? It's an open book test, open book quiz here. Some of you guys have to take, I'm looking back at one of our brothers, have to take licensing exams for your work, right? Are those open book? No. So are you, are you, uh, are you a licensed user of the Bible? Like, do you have enough knowledge to be, you know, to use the scriptures accurately? Just wondering. Anne has it. Chapter 8, verse 5. In fact, almost the entirety of chapter 8, or a large segment of it, is given over to this movement of the gospel to Samaria. What happened in Acts chapter 8? Well, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, this is not the first time they've encountered Christ. Remember, he showed up in John chapter 4 where? To a woman at a well. Sychar, Jacob's well, and um, ministered to them. And many believed in him. But he went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip. And then there was all kinds of controversy and unclean spirits and everything. And, and then a certain you know, sorcerer seemed to get saved, but later on we find out that was not quite accurate uh, or not quite true. He didn't. He seemed to, but not really. And, uh, and then the apostles at Jerusalem heard this as 8.14, and they sent Peter and John to them. And I think that's significant because you see the central apostles uh, recognizing the movement of the gospel into Samaria. And what happened then? Uh, they preached that they might, uh, or prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. He hadn't fallen on any of them yet and uh, laid hands on them, they received the Spirit. And uh, you remember the accounting of the, f- the sorcerer who wanted to buy that power himself with money and couldn't. Um, and so that takes you down to chapter 8, verse 25. And then uh, we'll pause there, but that's where the gospel went to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, the book says. 
Acts chapter 1.8. Well, where did that begin to happen? Well, 8.26 is one of those places. Although um, Philip didn't have to go very far, he went down to uh, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza in the desert, and there was a man of Ethiopia, an official, government official there who had come to worship God, and he gets saved. So historically we know there's been a contingent of Christians in the area of Ethiopia, and this is the beginning of it. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that man must have gone and shared his faith, we believe, with those about him. But then where in the book of Acts do you find the gospel going out to another group of Gentiles? Where in Acts? Somebody else besides Anne. I see Anne leafing through her Bible there. Somebody else. Peter goes to Cornelius. That's in two chapters forward, chapter 10, and it's described also in chapter 11. And there, two uh, divine revelations occur. One, an angel goes to Cornelius and says, hey, you need to send somebody to go get Peter. Here's who he is, where he is. So Cornelius does that. Cornelius, I'll mention him in the morning message uh, today as well, was a God-fearing Gentile. Uh, Not sure if he was quite a full convert or proselyte to Judaism, but uh, he was somebody who cared about the things of God. God saw to it that he got the gospel through the mouth of Peter. The second miraculous or supernatural event that occurred, or a revelatory event, was that Peter was up praying in the lunch hour, the time food is being prepared, and, and God used uh, the pangs of hunger that he was feeling to show him a vision of unclean food, which is eaten by unclean people, Okay, Gentiles, I'm speaking from the mindset of a Jewish person now, okay? I know there really are no such thing as, there is no such thing as unclean people, but from the Jewish mindset at the time, God had told them to be separated from them, and so there he's saying, man, this is unclean food, unclean people eat that, thus I cannot have table fellowship with people who eat unclean food. God says, eh, it's all off, it's all different now, and the Lord had pre pre-taught this in Mark chapter 7 when he taught them, look, what goes in doesn't defile. Too late. (laughs) Already what's inside is what defiles. The food just goes in and passes through the alimentary canal. It's no big deal. So he changed those food laws because they had become a hindrance to the movement of the gospel out of the Jewish community into the Gentile community. So Peter is told the food is clean, thus he's to call no man common or unclean, and thus he can go and visit with Cornelius and the other Gentiles there and minister to them. It's a powerful section of Scripture. But God had to do some special things in order to convince them that indeed it is valid and okay for you to go to the Gentiles. You're to go to to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth I don't know that we appreciate this so much. I mean, it's like somebody who's grown up being taught their whole life that pork is unclean, it's sinful to eat, it tastes bad anyway or whatever they're told, and, you know, you can't have it. To come to the point of realizing, actually, that's what I thought I had learned my whole life from from the first time I can remember, that was wrong. 
Can you imagine the change in the the change in your conscience that that must entail? The difficulty of getting over what you have known for your whole life in a in an area where you hold it close to your heart because it's your faith. It's your religion. You believe that's how you please God. You believe that's how you are obedient to the Lord. And Peter is able to say, look, I've never eaten anything like that, Lord. This is totally new, different. Uh, my conscience is, is smiting me. I can't do it. The Lord has to reinform his conscience and reprogram him, if you will, to know what to do. So they are told to be witnesses. And this is how the Lord ended the Gospels as well. Remember, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them whatever I've commanded you. So what I'm saying is our focus, we, we, we spend more time talking about COVID than we do talking about evangelism, I think. Is that, is that a fair assessment lately? We need to be on the ball, folks. If, we're, if we claim to be a good church, which we hope we do, we are, uh, we need to be on the ball that this is our task. We are to evangelize. We are to make contacts. We are to share the gospel with them. We are to influence them for the things of God and so on. <clears throat> now, Acts chapter 2. Once uh, people are confronted with the message of the gospel, and that's what happens in Acts chapter 2, then what? So Peter um, responds to the charges that the Spirit of God has come, and the men are speaking, and men and women perhaps speaking in tongues. Oh, they're drunk, the crowd says. Well, no, they're not actually, Peter says. This is like what it was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, that the Spirit of God would come upon all flesh and that will happen in the far future, but this is like that. This is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. And then he begins to talk to them about the Messiah. He talks about a, a prophetic text in the Psalms, Psalm 16. And he says, look, David, who wrote this, he's dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day, but he was a prophet. And he actually was talking about the Messiah and the Christ who would sit upon the throne of David and then he says, this Jesus, God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise from the Father, the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but says, Himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he preaches the gospel to them, and he ends with 38 and 39. He says, repent. They uh, are wondering, what are we going to do? What should we do now? He says, repent. Be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he is exercising the... I mean... Listen, Jesus says, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then Peter says in chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus was raised up by God, of which we are all witnesses. I mean, he says it right there. He's fulfilling what Christ told them to do. 
testifying of Jesus Christ and calls them to repent and believe the gospel. And then many, verse 41, received his word, they were baptized, and about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued. Now here, I asked the question beginning of the message here, what's the priority of the church? And the scripture tells us, by example, they continued steadfastly in several things. One, the apostles' doctrine. That's what we're doing here. We're teaching the doctrine of the church. So we have a responsibility to be witnesses. We gather people into churches, and then we have a collective responsibility to pay attention to the apostles' doctrine. That would be the second key ingredient. Fellowship, that'd be third. Breaking of bread, that would be four. And as some may say that's just eating meals together. It's probably the Lord's table. If, if, if eating meals, it certainly includes the Lord's table. And then number five, in prayer. So why do we, how do we do church? Well, teaching biblical doctrine, being together, fellowship, can't be had by being apart, breaking of bread, having the Lord's table, and praying together. And uh, we saw just above that they also did baptism. Okay, so what do we have now? Six key items, the Great Commission, baptism, and then the four that are listed here in Acts chapter 2. Those are where our focus should be in our church. If we're to follow the example of the early church, so they continued in those things, verse 43, then says, they, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Then it talks about how they helped one another with the, their needs, verse 44, 5, and then 6, they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I think there is common meals together. Praising God, we could say that's a... Number seven, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So it may be that we lack, we lack effectiveness because we're focused on the wrong uh, things, focused on the wrong things. And I want to commend that to you as a reminder. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, pastors are adv- advised by, you know, the experts, whoever they are, Share with your church at least once a year, what is the purpose of your church? What is the mission? What are we supposed to be doing? Because if you don't, you're going to lose focus and you can you know, kind of be bumbling about in, uh, like in a dark room with no flashlight trying to find your way. And uh, it's going to be a, a painful outcome <laughs> if that's the case. So we want to be sure that we are following what Scripture tells us as to the program that we're supposed to be on. And I wanted to commend that to you because I see, and I was, I was in Salem, Ohio last week, as you know, and on Saturday morning we had a prayer meeting and there were probably maybe a half a dozen churches represented there at that conference. And the prayer request that I shared for us and for the rest of the churches was for unity around this whole notion that we've been talking about and kind of pushing out to the side some of these distractible uh, kinds of issues and um, that people would come back to the church and be unified together and gathering. 
and that we would not lose our focus on what we're supposed to be doing. And so I commend that to you this morning to remind us of our focus. We need individually and as a church to be thinking, how are we going to reach out to the community? Now, we might, I've thought of one possible way to use the current contemporary events to reach out to the community. But our focus doesn't need to be just on that. It's how are we going to reach our loved ones, our family members, uh, and those that we work with uh, for the gospel. Um, you know, you might think, well, I'm, I'm working on that, but, you know, you're going so slow that, that it might not actually, nothing might actually occur until your coworker's 85 years old. Well, they might not make it to 85 since the life expectancy for Americans is under 80 now, men less than that. You know, we have some limited time, don't we? Life is a vapor. And so we have to tend to spiritual matters now. You never know when the uh, curtains will drop on any particular soul. And we certainly have had that experience in our church. Uh, sudden passings of people, even young people, and then, of course, just, you know, grandparents and all just one after the other, God populating heaven. Hopefully they're all believers. Um, but we have limited time. And so we need to, with the limited time we have, say, look, we can't do everything, but we can do some things, and we should do those things that have been pointed out to us that are the key and important things. So I commend that to you in the way of what are the priorities of the church. Let's keep that in mind. Let's pray. Father, may you be pleased with how we conduct ourselves here at Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, other church assemblies as well, may they be reminded of the important things that we've been called to do. The rest are secondary or tertiary or less in importance. And so we pray you'd help us keep that focus. Lord, help our church, we pray, in every way that we need. Lord, help us to use the gifts that we've been given. And if there are areas where we are not gifted as a, as a collective body, that you would send others who have certain gifts that we need. We take what you've given to us, Lord, as the measure of your thought of what our need is. And yet, there are some things I suspect that you've given to us that we simply are not activating or using. And I pray that you would help us to do that in service of this mission that we've looked at today. Not to be mixed up in thinking about you know, when the kingdom is coming and all the political things and stuff like that, but to think about how we can make disciples and uh, be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.